Well, today is a very special day. Uh, to all the moms out there, we shout, shout out to you. We thank God for you. Uh, you know, um, I'll tell this story. I think I told it last, last year, but I'll tell it again. It doesn't really segue into the message at all, but just, I want to just tell this story and uh, exhort, ex- exhort all of you. I have a niece who is uh, autistic, so autism is pretty rampant um, today. And uh, so every article about autism, you know, if I, if I see it, I, I read it uh, um, from start to end. Uh, last year, around this time, uh, Time Magazine had a cover story on autism. And um, it's talking about this debilitating disease, this um, developmental disorder. It affects uh, children, um, you know, each one differently. It's a spectrum condition. Um, but it's really difficult because it's Greek for self, and these children become really inwardly focused, and they do not relate to others, even parents. They don't communicate, and they do the same things over and over and over again. And um, for those severe cases, it becomes really difficult for parents to care for their children. They had a story of a little girl named Hannah who was severely autistic. And, uh, you know, just intense therapy, intense treatment. And it wasn't until she was 13 years old that doctors and those who were treating her had any sense they were getting through to her. In October of 2005, the... Medical staff introduced her to the use of a specialized computer keyboard. And through that keyboard, they were able to relay and talk to her, and she was able to respond back. So they they made a breakthrough, and she was able to understand and comprehend and relay back um, uh, her thoughts. So uh, a lady named Marilyn Chadwick um, at Syracuse University asked her, with her, you know, family surrounding her, little Hannah, is there anything you'd like to say? And uh, her first words to her family was, quote, I love mom. Right. I love mom. First thing she was able to say. And of course, uh, you know, everyone broke down in tears, especially the mom. What a great story. I think it rightly expresses the sentiment of, in the heart of all children. Um, she couldn't say it till she was 13 because of autism. But the first opportunity, um, she said, I love mom. So, you know, all of us, every time we see our moms, we tell them we love them. And all the more on this, on this day, today of all days. So, make sure you at least call them today. If not, you know, see them in person. And especially you guys out there, right? Unless you're autistic, right? <laughs> you know, make sure you say those three magical words to them. You know, definitely have a gift, have something, but say to them, you know, I love you. Tell them you love them and tell them how special they are. Pray for them and truly thank God for them on this day. Well, because it's Mother's Day, I wanted to do a, just a brief topical study on the God-centered family. On the God-centered family. And we begin this morning's study on the family, with God at the center. With God at the center of our lives, of our hearts, of our motivations. We believe that God must be the supreme passion of our lives. He must be the driving motivation 
of everything we do. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Everything we do is for the supreme purpose of magnifying God, His greatness, His majesty, His divine characteristics. To display that is to be our driving motivation. That was the motivation of our Lord Christ going to the cross. We sang about that this morning, the song for God. That Jesus was not man-centered. He was not a pragmatist. He was indeed God-centered. He had sound theology. In John 12, 27-28, our Lord is articulating His internal monologue. He is, in, in a way, talking to Himself and He expresses it for us to hear and to benefit. Now is my soul agitated, it's troubled, it's quaking within me, and what shall I say? Shall I pray this prayer, Father, save me from this hour, knowing that if Christ were to pray this prayer, the Father would agree and deliver him from the cross. Our Lord steadies himself. He resolves not to pray this prayer. And he says, it is for this purpose, for this hour I have come. And verse 28, Father, glorify your name. So by that singular sentence, we discover the driving passion of Christ in going to the cross. It was not His love for us. It was not because of His compassion or mercy towards us. If it was just us, He would not have gone to the cross. His ultimate motivation was the glory of the Father. We find that continually expressed in the high priestly prayer of John 17. Our final discourse with the disciples ends with His pouring out of His soul to God in the upper room in the presence of 11 disciples. He lifted up His eyes, John 17, 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son. Display through Me My glory so that the Son may glorify you. And he um, describes what eternal life is. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. The essence of salvation, the essence of eternal life, is the knowledge of the Father. He wants to display that through the cross, God's perfect judgment, His thrice holy character, and also His perfect love. That is why J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, said, what were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that our Lord gives to us? It's the knowledge of God, John 17, 3. Jai Packer said, What is the best thing in life? Bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else. The knowledge of God. Brothers and sisters, this is our eternal life. This is our true and lasting joy. God, as He's revealed Himself to us 
through His Son, Jesus Christ. And this joy will not fade. Not only is it eternal, everlasting, but it's increasing eternally. Jonathan Edwards said, The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives or children or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But God is the substance. These are but scattered beams. But God is the sun. These are but streams. But God is the ocean. So we, I think to varying degrees, depending on our commitment to Christ and our maturity, understanding of Scripture, experience personally this joy of knowledge of God. Whether we come on corporate worship and we sing these songs or we hear the Word of God or at Bible study or a small group or alone in our, in our rooms and we're praying and we're studying Scripture, we taste firsthand the sweetness, the goodness, the joy of God in the Gospel. And yet, sadly, so many Christians and so many well-meaning Christians go from that height of that experience and go to their family where the intensity of that joy, that, that gravity of that joy should be increased. But they go to their family where there are other believers there. Parents are believers, or your husband, your wife's a believer, your wife, your husband's a believer, your children as well. And you, from church you go home, or from your quiet time you go and have breakfast with your family, and the knowledge of God isn't there. The joy of God isn't present. The presence of the Holy Spirit is not to be found. You go from you know, the height of glory to the valley of despair because you go to your family and there should be, there ought to be, especially as Christian husband and wife, the sweet joy of fellowshipping in Christ and savoring the knowledge of God. And you turn and you find that it is empty. It is not satisfying. The joy of God is not there. We need to understand that there are threats to every Christian family. To turn a Christian family away from being a God-centered family to something else. And it is death by inches. There are, I contend to you that there are four elements in the family that battle for God, that battle God for control of the family. Four distinct influences that strive for supremacy at home. I think all of us, to varying degrees, have experienced this in our upbringing. And maybe we're resolved to say along with Pastor John Smith, we can't help the heritage given to us, but we want to start and leave a godly heritage behind. We want to make sure that we are a God-centered family. My wife and I, my husband and I, we want to be a God-centered family. But in your endeavor, in your pursuit of that purpose, it is important for you to discern and 
understand the threats, the pitfalls, these four distinct elements that, are, that line the way that will hinder you from having a God-centered family. Four elements. We'll go through them one by one. The first one is a child-centered family. I would say for a young family is the greatest threat. The greatest threat to having a God-centered family is that 6 to 12-pound baby you bring home from the hospital, right? Maybe 6 to 11, <laughs> 6 to 12, right? This cute, adorable, and small baby, maybe two babies, threaten your Christian family. These are uh, this one little monster or two little monsters. Vie for supremacy. They're like schoolyard bullies, right? What happens to a schoolyard bully if you don't stand up to it? First day of school. Right? You don't stand up to it. You got to get a black guy, right? Because if you get one black guy, then rest of the school year, you won't get any more. But if you try not to get a black guy that first day, then every day or every week or many times throughout the school year, you'll get black eyes. Likewise, the schoolyard bully that comes into your home thinking he or she is the ruler of the family, unless you stand up to it and you purposely declare that the child is not the authority of our family. He or she is not going to dictate to us the direction of our lives. Unless you do that, he or she, by one cry after another, <laughs> inch by inch, take over and rule your household. Lou Priolo defines a child-centered home in this way. It is one in which a child believes and is allowed to behave as though the entire household Parents, siblings, and even pets exist for one purpose. To please Him. I, I read um, this from one of the moms of a newborn son. No one from Cornerstone, so don't start thinking, who is this talking about? Not from Cornerstone, but this is what she wrote. This is what she confessed. Our child is the center of our lives these days and I'm afraid it's been very hard in our spiritual life. This is a couple that was once very committed to Christ and very committed to the church. We've been very inconsistent with Sunday church attendance. We usually go out on Saturday nights and our son gets thrown off the sleep schedule and usually wakes up a lot during the night and I'm too exhausted to wake up for service in the morning. You'd figure by now things should be getting better now that our child is older, but I'm ashamed to say that it really hasn't. For our small group on Wednesday nights, we can't even go. Sometimes I wonder, is it really that hard to wake up and go to church? I know I would never miss a pediatrician appointment for our child. So is it that church has just gotten to be a lesser priority? Ouch. That thought really grieves my heart. Let me give you some warning signs of a child-centered home. Some symptoms of a house where the child is ruling the household. One symptom is the happiness of the child is of the utmost importance. One of the core values of the family is to have the child be happy. The child or the children, they dictate the family schedule. They determine what time the parents wake up, the, time, the meal times, bedtimes. The children tell the parents 
um, you know, the schedule of the home. And we had a foster child. We uh, took in a girl for a few months, and uh, she was so neglected. And talking to, the, to her mom, she was telling us over the phone how this almost three-year-old child won't go to sleep until at least 10.30 p.m., and you need to hold her and watch Disney movies for about an hour, and you need to hold her and she'll go to sleep. We did it for the first night just to, like, ease her and transition to our home, her temporary home with us. But she's not going to keep us up. I don't want to watch Disney movies every night. Evenings are my my time with my wife. Um, And so starting second night, we transitioned her, sleeping at 7.30 p.m., just like our other children. I think within a week, she was back. She was in that routine, right? But a child center home, no. The happiness of the child is the most important thing. And if it's uh, Disney movies till 12, then Disney movies it is till 12. Third symptom is uh, the, ch- the needs of the child take precedence over the needs of the spouse. So the priority, the, main, the most important relationship is with the child or children rather than husband or wife. The child demands ex- excessive time and attention from the parents to the point that it's a detriment to their biblical responsibilities as Christians. They are, they are hindered from following Christ, ministry, evangelism, hospitality, service to the church, service to the world, all because it needs the children to take precedent. They uh, speak to parents as though they were peers. They interrupt ch- adults when they are talking. There is no discipline or very little discipline or no training. Children are, again, little monsters. They use manipulation and rebellion to get their way. And they'll throw temper tantrums, and that's their MO, right? They throw temper tantrums and embarrass the parents to get their way. And, you know, the more people that are there, the better, because they have greater leverage to manipulate their parents. And if you don't believe me, just go to Toys R Us, Sit, you know, stand on the checkout counter, and several times an hour you'll see children, um, you know, manipulating parents and parents giving in to the whims uh, of these young ones. It is in the context of a child-centered family that many children grow up believing that society owes them and fill in the blank. Society owes them a living, attention, happiness, uh, special privileges. Uh, the world revolves around them. What they want is the most important thing. And they demand um, every want that they have. I telling Elizabeth this week, like she wanted something, and Elizabeth, what you want is not important. And, you know, she was shocked, right? I've got to stop talking about my children, but what can I do, right? Uh, hopefully they're not listening. <laughs> she was shocked. Elizabeth, yeah, what you want is not important. What daddy wants is not important. What's important is what does God want, right? Our heart is, what, what pleases God? For a child-centered family, what, the most important thing is what does a child want? And me- meeting his or her needs, and the child grows up. And the, the sad thing is the child does not grow up. Grows old, but doesn't grow up. Second threat to a God-centered family is the money-centered family. Money-centered family. A money-centered home is one in which the parents view money as the source of their happiness 
security and identity, and they pass this value down to the children. This is endemic in our culture. I read a USA Today, USA Today article, April, 6, 2000, April 3rd, 2006. The title is, American families are envied by the world but also disdained. Experts who study families around the globe say that America's middle class family is the one people in other countries both love and loathe. People from other countries hold up the American middle class family as the modern ideal through media. They see the wealth and prosperity of middle class Americans, um, American families, middle class families in America and they want, they aspire to that. But researchers say these families uh, disdain U.S. families because of their independence and material prosperity. They say American families may have money, but they don't have time, and they don't bond together. There is a sense that the family is a residential center, and people are going off during the day into his or her own world. And because of their focus on material things, they see family life in America as emotionally empty. There's a very clear criticism of American life as being overly individualistic, materialistic, and as being selfish. And uh, we would agree. A lot of what they say is true. This is the world that we live in. Some symptoms again, some warning signs of a home centered on money. Uh, Both parents work with young children not to pay for necessities. If it's necessities, then by all means, everyone should work. But to pay for luxuries. Money has the greatest influence in family decisions. A main concern of the family is keeping up with the Joneses. Uh, They buy things for their ego. They buy brand name clothes and shoes and athletic gear or gadgets or cars so that others will perceive them as being rich. All the while going the deeper into debt. They use money to coerce and manipulate one another. Husbands and wives and even children. The authority of the family is somewhat based on who makes more money. Minimum time spent at home with family because of work. They live above their means. How about this one? These are some practical insights. These aren't scriptural principles. So hope that you're taking it with discernment. But one symptom of a money-centered family is they have separate bank accounts. Why? Why is that a potential symptom of a money-centered family? They have um, money secrets in the home, right? Husband and wife, they have secrets from one another dealing with money. So important. They can trust each other for a lot of things, but not with money. So they have separate bank accounts. It is in the context of a money-centered family that children grow up to be materialistic, prideful, spoiled, about angry and rebellious. 
think children grow up and they understand that these material things, they're immediately happy with getting the toys, the video games and the bicycles and maybe getting a BMW at your 16th birthday. They're, in, they're you know, initially happy, but they understand over time that it's empty. It's meaningless. And they understand, even young children, that parents are buying them off because parents are too busy with their own toys, own video games, own purchases to spend time with children. And so children can, in this kind of environment, grow up angry and bitter, growing in resentment and rebellious. Two more. Church-centered family. Another threat having God being the center of the family. A church-centered family is one in which Pharisaic hypocrisy and legalism is practiced and affirmed. Pharisaic hypocrisy and legalism is practiced and affirmed. Some warning signs of a church-centered home. Sin is overlooked and tolerated as long as no one outside the church, no one outside the home knows about it. It's okay how you behave at home as long as at church long as in front of others you behave yourself. You don't confront sin only when it's exposed to the church or outsiders. There is excessive focus on controlling public appearance and controlling public behavior of children. Family time is dominated by conversations about the church, people, and activities full of gossip and maligning words about church people, putting others down. Another sign is the church is seen as the primary uh, steward for teaching and discipleship. So it's the church's job to teach my children the word of God, church's job to train and discipline them, not the parents. Two more significant and increasing gap between public spiritual life and private spiritual life. So it's like the Pharisees, they like to pray long with many words before others. But inside, they're full of dead men's bones. So at home, no one's praying, no one's really reading scripture, there's no spiritual dialogue. But in the church, man, you don't want to be in the small group when they pray because they don't stop, Right? And when they share, they don't know how to talk about normal things because all they talk about is scripture and spiritual things. Now, it's good, but there's a great gap between public performance and private reality. And one more, the closest, closest relationships are with those outside the family. Closest relationships are with those outside the family. So the wife, she has the most intimate talks with people maybe her friends at church, her friends in the world, husband, closest, closer to co-workers rather than his own wife, children likewise. It is in the context of a church-centered family that many children learn fear of man. They're not learning fear of God, they're learning fear of man. They become hypersensitive to the opinion of others, opinion of others. They learn the art and skill of hypocrisy. They become experts at the skill of maintaining a good public life. 
yet their private life is out of control. One more. I'm going to skip the husband, do another whole sermon in the future on the husband-centered family. The wife-centered family. This involves both the husband and wife. The final symptom, final threat, excuse me, is the wife-centered family. A wife-centered family is one in which the wife is a spiritual and overall leader of the family while the husband is out playing and you fill in, you know, the blank there. What is he playing? Is he playing basketball? He's just playing, period, right? He's out there playing. You know, he's got a new hobby every year. Some um, symptoms of a wife-centered family. The husband is passive at home. He's passive in the church and in the community. In the basketball court, he is visible. He wants the ball. He wants to count. He wants to shoot. But at home, he's invisible. He's silent. He's behind the scenes. He's like a shifting shadows. He's barely there. In the church, he's barely visible. Right? In the community, he's almost non-existent. He is not a shepherd. He's not a leader. He's not an authority at home. Children, over time, learn. No need to go to dad to ask for anything. I don't have to get his permission because he has no authority in the home. Mom, she's the truth. She wears the pants. So if I want or need anything, if I need to get permission, go to the mom because she is the true leader of the home. My dad is a puppet. Um, Douglas Wilson said this in the Christian world today countless marriages have not really been spiritually consummated the marriage covenant has been made and there has been physical consummation but the marriage is still not right it is not right because a marriage cannot be spiritually consummated if the husband acts the part of a spiritual eunuch Such a eunuch is one who is impotent in his masculinity. The irony is that spiritual eunuchs are almost always nice guys. This causes great frustration and many temptations for the wife. Countless nice Christian men have wives in this state of continual frustration. And the more frustrated the wife gets, the nicer the husband tries to be. Unfortunately, this, quote, niceness is not biblical gentleness. It is abdication. This is the nature of the problem. Many Christian men are nice guys, but they do not provide the strength of leadership that God requires and their wives need. God requires husbands to be strong leaders. Strong, firm, steadfast, courageous servant leaders of the home. And that is the kind of, precisely the kind of leader the wife needs. But they are nice guys. They're men in skirts, right? They're wearing skirts. And they are, they have this disease. It's worse than the fear of man, it's the fear of woman, right? They fear their wives, right? They fear. Uh, their wives, disappointing their wives, they fear ang- you know, the anger of their wife, the wrath of their wife. Right? So one of the key, sy- key symptoms of a wife-centered family is that the husband's goal is to just keep his wife happy. Right? To pl- placate her. To help her be content. Help her to be quiet. <laughs> right? Help her to be just 
happy. Right? The whole culture of the family is centered around making mom happy. Another symptom is the wife does not respect her husband. She refuses to submit to her own husband. She is out of control. She, has, she will not submit herself to her own covering, her own authority, and no one dare confront her. The husband must confront, but he's too afraid. Right. Children can't. So she's left to herself and she's out of control. The children see mom's lack of respect for her own husband, and what do they do? They follow her example. And they increasingly grow and not respect, respecting their father. They speak to him disrespectfully. They malign him. They talk behind his back. They overtly rebel against their dad, knowing that he has no true authority in the home. Right? The family undermines the husband's leadership, and the wife is leading the charge. It is in the context of a wife-centered home that a son grows to be spiritually, emotionally, mentally immature. Right? They're, they're somewhat ruined. Like men that grew up in this kind of environment, this is all, again, this is not a principle from Scripture. These are just kind of like applications, insights, wisdom. It's like Proverbs. It's not always true. Right? The wicked sometimes live long. The righteous die early. It's not always true. But generally it is the case. So generally... In a wife-centered home, men grow up and um, they, are, they, they have an extended adolescence. Just irresponsible, unreliable, immature. They're, they, they are passive. They are boys in men's bodies. Right? And in, by God's grace, they, by God's help and God's grace, they grow out of that. But it takes a long time. And it's in the context of a wife-centered home that daughters learn that you can't trust men. <laughs> right? Daughters learn you can't depend on men and she needs to be independent. She needs to look out for herself, think for herself, care for herself, and she can't trust men, rely on them because they're not reliable. She, right? The answer is not to confront these things individually. The answer is the practice of replacement. So we're not called to fight against all these things separately, in a sense, but um, pursue one thing that'll take care of the rest, which is the pursuit of being a God-centered family, being a family that is centered on God, placing God in the forefront of the household. A God-centered family is one in which the parents live under the authority of the Scriptures, and seek to have the entire household pursue the pleasure of God in all things. Right. So, there are many, many symptoms and practices of a God-centered family. Uh, one, one is which the priority, the priority relationship is between husband and wife. Both husband and wife understand that this is the permanent relationship that is to be given top priority in the family. So husband and wife understand this child is so cute and so precious, but this beautiful child will one day grow up and within 18 to 35 years, he or she will move out of the household. They're praying it's 18, not 35. 
but one day. It's a temporary relationship. It's not till death do us part with our son or daughter. But husband and wife, it is death till death do us part. And what the children need the most is to see their dad love, their, love his mom and see mom love her husband. Right? So we tell Elizabeth, right? find your own husband. Right? When someone tells her that. Right? You need to get married. Right? Mommy and daddy, it's our relationship is first and foremost. It's our time. You go to sleep. Right? When we're talking, you don't, inter- you don't interrupt us because me listening to my wife is way more important than listening to my children. There is unity between husband and wife. A pursuit of unity in doctrine, in life, and priorities. They seek unity in all things. So with children, children are trained, they are taught and trained to cheerfully obey the first time. The children are taught and trained to respect mom when daddy's not home. So the father makes sure, children, you obey my wife. You're a schoolyard bully. I won't let a bully disrespect my wife. So you will respect her. And the children are also taught by the mom to respect their father, to honor him, to revere him, to esteem him. Family schedule revolves around God's priorities. God dictates, God determines what are to be the priorities of the household. Not dad, not mom, not children. God tells us what are to be our priorities, what are to be the values of our household. Parents ensure that the children are taught, admonished, and disciplined according to the principles and wisdom of the scriptures. So they enforce obedience. You're called to obey when the scriptures prescribe consequences of disobedience to authority, knowing that if you grow in rebellion against parents, you'll rebel all authorities. If you rebel against mom and dad, you'll rebel against teachers. You'll rebel against police officers. You'll rebel against the government. You'll rebel against God. The first line of authority that you are called to submit to is parents. And we need to teach you and train you to submit to your authority at home. Then your submission to other authorities will be much easier. They will make sure that children do not speak to parents as if they were their peers, but to speak to them with respect and honor. Children will be taught humility and propriety by listening when adults are speaking and speaking in right and appropriate times and ways. They will understand that mom does not exist to serve them. Mom is not a dishwasher. She's not the one who cleans after you, vacuums after you. She's not your slave nor servant. They need to learn that so that they will see that God does not exist for them. Right? Daddy doesn't exist. God is not. The children, all of us, we exist for God. We exist to serve God. And therefore, we exist to serve one another. So mom and dad, we serve children. Dad serves mom. Mom serves dad. Children serve one another. They also serve parents. From a young age, they are to be taught and trained accordingly. They are to be taught and trained to be sensitive to the needs of others. 
and to provide help when needed. Right? They are taught to be outward focused, others centered. They're naturally self-centered, inward centered. Their own needs focused. You need to teach our kids in a God-centered family because God is a center. You are not the center. You need to be centered on God, sensitive to the pleasure of God, and sensitive to the needs of others. In the area of money, when God is the center, God's word has the greatest influence in family decisions. Right? Money, second, third, fourth priority. The main issue is what does God's word say about this, this decision? They budget their income so that they live humbly and below their means. They understand that they don't live to keep up with the Joneses. They live to be beautiful in the sight of God, for God to see them and to be glorified and to be pleased. They are, they are satisfied with spiritual things. So they don't buy things for, to stoke their ego. They don't have, they don't, Participate in retail therapy. And I know all of us to different degrees participate in that. I do as well. You know, right? When I'm stressed, right, I'll, I'll buy things. I have one too many basketball shoes in my garage. And my wife is understanding. I go through that. When I'm struggling, I go through uh, Foot Locker and <laughs> look at these basketball shoes. But I know when I, when I do that, it's a spiritual issue. Right? If I'm content in Christ, then I won't buy things to make me feel better. Right? Multiply that with your wife and children and that is practice and that grows where satisfaction comes from Christ, not from purchasing things. Another sign of a God-centered family is that they give more to Christ and to missions than to entertainment. Right. How, this, how this affects husband and wife, God-centered family, each are joyfully and wisely pursuing their God-given roles in a God-centered family. The husband delights in being a servant. He comes home from work and he says to himself, my ministry is beginning. I'm coming to work now. Right? I'm punching the clock. I'm starting my time and I'm here to serve my wife and serve my children. It's not time for me to veg out. It's not time for me to say, what about me? Cater to me. It's time for me to say, roll up my sleeves time for me to sacrifice for my wife and for my children and the greatest way is to serve them by leading spiritually leading them in word and prayer leading them by example leading them by listening by loving and caring by being fully there emotionally sacrificially and just practically personally being there he delights in pursuing God, loving his family, serving the church, and evangelizing the lost. God-centered family, the husband, fulfills that role with joy. The wife delights in her role by serving her family, by honoring and respecting her husband. Her first responsibility is to honor him, right, to defer to him, to let him lead and to be his greatest cheerleader. And next, by being devoted to her family, by being devoted to her home, in a God-centered family, the husband is not afraid of his wife. He's afraid of God. He has a holy, healthy fear of God. In a God-centered family, the wife is not afraid of her husband. She has no fear of him. But she fears God. She fears disobeying God. Right? Not pleasing and glorifying God. Right? 
instead of fear, there's true love for God and true love for one another. How does this affect the church? Um, in a God-centered family, everyone understands the focal point of God's instruction, discipleship, training and holy living is in the family, not in the church. Right, the church is a parachurch. Church comes alongside the family to help the parents in raising godly kids, godly children. The parents, even the children understand the main sphere of discipleship, training for holy living is in the family. The greatest concern is what God thinks. And they care about what others think, not for selfish reasons, but for selfless reasons. They care about others' opinions so that they can serve them in a greater way. Right? Like a cheesy example, you know, you care about what people think about, about food so that you can rightly serve a good meal when they visit. Right? You care about the needs of others. You care about that so that you can serve them wisely and appropriately. Right? In a God-centered family, fear of man, opinions, opinion of other people, even leaders, even pastors, doesn't drive their decisions. Scripture, wisdom from the scriptures, and wise counsel and counselors from the scriptures drive their decisions. And their main desire is to glorify God, pleasing God. Close with seven pillars of a God-centered family. Seven pillars. These are seven core values that every family, God-fearing family ought to pursue to make sure that God stays, God is and God remains at the center of one's, one's family. First of all, pursue the authority of God's word. That the authority of the, in the family is the word of God. That authority of the family is not culture, it's not tradition, it's not psychology or society, it's not the experts, it's not the one who makes the most money, but the word of God. Second commitment is to study and obey the word of God. Commitment of the father to study and teach the word of God. Commitment of the mom to study and teach commitment of the children to listen and practice God's word. Psalm 41.1 Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us. Psalm 71.18 Do not forsake me even to old age and gray hairs until I proclaim your might to another generation. That's the resolve of a godly man. God, do not leave me until I pass on your truths to the next generation. Psalm 78, 2 and 4. Psalm 78, 2 and 4. I will open my mouth. I will utter dark sayings. What our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children. But we will tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. So a main pillar of a God-centered family is they're leaning forward towards the Word of God. Their desire is to study and understand it and do whatever it takes to obey God's Word. Third pillar is dependence on God through prayer. 
they pray together, husband and wife. I had, a, I had a real good husband share with me openly confessing, but they don't. He doesn't pray with his wife. And I humbly exhorted the brother, "Well, you need to pray with your wife because that's why you want to. You married a Christian woman, right? So you can study the Bible with her, you can fellowship with her, and you can pray with her. Like one of the joys of the Christian marriage is able to pursue Christ together. Now why would you?" Neglect so great a joy between a godly husband and a godly wife. Don't pray together. Fourth is uh, unity of parents. Fourth pillar, fourth pursuit is unity of parents. I mean, theology, doctrine, and philosophy of life, family and ministry, core values, view of money, friends, church, raising children. You, want, you need to have uni- unity. You need to have precise unity. Communicate as much as possible. I know for husbands this is very difficult for you, but this is, this is part and parcel of leadership. Right? A leader who does not communicate well is not a good leader. A leader is defined by his ability to communicate. And if you're a good communicator, you're a good leader. If you're a poor communicator, you're a poor leader. You need to have precise communication. Um... You know, one time, Sarah and I talked for 30 minutes. What we mean when we say to our daughters, close your eyes. Right? We're driving to vacation somewhere two years ago, and we told our daughters, close your eyes. Now, Elizabeth opened her eyes again in a few minutes. And so we had this division whether to train and discipline our daughter for disobeying. I'm like, Serene, when, when we say close your eyes, does it mean like close as long as you can or close it for 30 minutes or close it permanently, right? Never open, don't open your eyes so we can tell you to open your eyes. Or are we saying try your best to close your eyes? What do we really mean by that? Like, yeah, well, I never thought about that. Like, what are, what are we saying when we command our children to close their eyes, talk for 30 minutes, and we conclude it means try your best to close your eyes. Right, when you open your eyes again, try again. Right? It's the pursuit of closing eyes, not you're forced to close your eyes. 30 minutes. Right? So that we will be united when we instruct our children. Even unity in pursuit of good things. Right? Unity in pursuit of good things. This is kind of a lengthy illustration. I'll use it again in a few years, but I'll give a real truncated version uh, this morning. Um, you know, there's that... Um, Team uh, Dick Hoyt. He's got a paralyzed son, and uh, his it was never a runner, never an athlete. But one day he went running with his son, and his son, who was paralyzed, said, "Dad, when we run, I feel normal." And so the dad, so inspired and so moved to help his son feel feel normal, runs with him in all these marathons. So they run like a bunch of a uh, triathlons, the Ironman, several times, like seven, eight times, uh, 2.2 miles in the open sea. His son was paralyzed, is riding on a raft, and he's tethered to the dad, and the dad swims in the open sea, and then he puts him on a bike, uh, on a, a modified bicycle where uh, they have a special seat for the son, his arm um, um, supported as well, and he rides for 112 miles, and then he's got a modified uh, um, you know, a wheelchair, 
and he runs with him for a whole marathon. And they do this together. Uh, they've been doing this together for 20 years. Um, great story. Inspirational. We saw the video, brought tears to our eyes. But we're so sad to find that uh, Dick Hoyt, his wife, divorced him um, after many years. Because he was so busy running all these races, running all these marathons, she was left back at home alone. And her words were, I love my husband, I love my son, I raised my son until he was 16, and I cared for him so much, but when this race thing started, it became just the two of them, and I was left home by myself. And after several years of this, right, I, want, I want out. And they filed for divorce. And like, great man, loves his son, demonstrated by his sacrifice, and yet he wasn't united with his wife. Right? So focused on doing something good that he neglected his wife. That's the unity that husbands need to pursue. Like, ministry is great, church is great, you know, work is great, but never at the expense of division with your own wives. We need to be united with them. And if it means slowing down in ministry, we're all down for that. Slow down in ministry. It means slowing down in the church, yes. It means maybe getting another job between wife or job. You better believe it. Wife. Every single time. The husband needs to pursue that unity with his own wife and slow down if it's necessary. Fifth pillar that they are to pursue so that God is the center and remains the center of their family is they clearly understand their roles and they practice them. It's being repetitive here, but husband is to be a servant leader at home, to be a good shepherd. He lays his life down for his wife, for his children. He's a diligent man, right? He's not a lazy man. Laziness is a threat to a God-centered family and it starts with the husband. He's not a lazy man. He is a strong and courageous man. Right? He's not afraid of his wife. He's afraid of God. And he's not afraid of his mom. Right? He's not a mama's boy. He understands Genesis 2.24 Leave and cleave. That, that day he no longer became, no longer remains to be a son first and foremost. He's first and foremost a husband. Right? Leader of his home. And the wife, she understands her role to, to, to love, to respect, to honor, to defend, to help, and to submit, to defer, to respect. Six is communication. Right? Communication, clear understanding, and continuing dialogue about the core values of the family. They communicate, and they have freedom to communicate about everything related to the family. And finally, short accounts. The center of the family is the gospel. It's not two righteous people getting married. It's two sinners saved by grace. It's two sinners saved by God, forgiven by Christ. So they keep short accounts. They're constantly forgiving one another because God so richly forgave them. 
they're not the unjust servant forgiven of a great debt. He can't turn and forgive a fellow servant for a small debt. It's not like a husband forgiven by God of his great transgressions but can't forgive his wife for a badly cooked dinner, right? Or a wife can't forgive her husband for socks in the stairs, right? They're constantly overlooking offense and constantly forgiving. Some questions to ask, maybe during uh, Mother's Day brunch today or drive home or pillow talk tonight. Sorry, you singles out there, but you could talk on Zenga maybe. In what ways is God not the center of our family? In what ways? What threatens to be the center of our family right now? Is it that this precious child that we brought to our family a few months ago? Is it our debt? Is it Cornerstone Bible Church? No, all we ever do is talk about church and church people. All we ever talk about is ministry. Right? What kind of family do we really want to be? What kind of home would you like to invite your friends to? Ask this to your wife or to your husband. What embarrasses you about our family? Next is a good question. If you could change two or three things about our family, what would it be? Honey, let's say with a snap of our finger, we could change two two things about our family. What would you want to change? What makes you feel comfortable here? What makes you want to come home? What do we want to be remembered by, by our children? What is the purpose of our family? What things are truly important to us as a family? What are our core values? What are our responsibilities as family members? Am I fulfilling them as a husband, as a wife, as children? What families inspire us? Why do we admire them? How can we imitate them? Let's pray together. Father, we... uh, Thank you for giving us wisdom from the scriptures. Lord, we know that our study of the scriptures must not end just by mere knowledge. It must not end by mere understanding and comprehension. For if we fail to diligently and specifically apply these truths to our lives and act upon them, we will become deceived, we will be led astray, we will be Will our eyes be blinded by the scriptures itself? The purpose of the scriptures is for us to follow and walk in its precepts. Lord, we pray for all the families here that we wage a lifelong war against these threats, against you being the center of our families. We would make a courageous stand and do all that's within us by focusing on the gospel so that you might reign supreme in our households so that we might be salt and light in this darkened world and people might be drawn to you by our families and so that parents and especially children would experience the joy of God, the delight of God God, who is our eternal life, that experienced that personally, foremostly in our home. May that be the case, Lord. May we pray for such grace. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.